you will open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts chapter 11, and we're going to uh, cover uh, all 30 verses this morning from the book of Acts uh, chapter 11. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Uh, you have heard me make these type of remarks fairly frequently that uh, the value of the, the usage of, of music uh, in the course of, of corporate worship is not so much that we would hear a catchy tune or some type of rhyming uh, type of phrase. Uh, it is the opportunity for the church to say together with one voice, the things that the church should be saying to their God, to their Savior. And I'm so appreciative of both songs that were chosen this morning, but uh, particularly of the second song uh, that, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, uh, in the bottom left-hand corner who actually wrote that particular song uh, was Joe and Tim Dumas. And again, what a pleasure it is to have them uh, be a part of what we're doing here, what God is doing here at North Clay. But I know this about you. Now, I could go to church brand X and I could say something very similar to what I'm about to say, that I know that you are in the midst of a trial. You see, life on this earth is, by definition, a time of trial. Certainly when you think of it in comparison to the life to which we hope, to which we look forward to, the life without conflict, without difficulty, the life in the presence of our Lord. But our Lord, as we sung and as we should be saying uh, to Him and be reminding each other, is our sovereign God who indeed has, before all things were created, declared all things that are to be, and who has declared the means to which those ends would be accomplished, that the Word would be proclaimed for the sake of the salvation of our souls, be proclaimed for the reminder of those whom He saves that we are in His care. And indeed, that rod, and that staff, and that presence is going with us, even in our difficulties. And so indeed, we sing to God, thanking Him for that truth, as we remind one another, appropriately, of that truth. And so as we continue and we look at Acts 11... We have emphasized something of a, of, of a theme that's in, again, that, that uh, transitional section that we are in of uh, the transition and the transformation of the church, the, the growth of the church. And the early church uh, needed to be transformed and they needed to transition. They needed to change. And the modern church needs to do the same. Now, you will find plenty inside and outside the church that will 
claim that will demand that we need to change. The problem for us that would honor God, that would seek to practice biblical Christianity is, again, what needs to change and what absolutely and even essentially and intrinsically must stay the same. And to be sure, the gospel hasn't changed. It must stay the same. If it changes, we are no longer Christian and we are no longer the church. Okay? And so, again, we look very critically. We try to understand how God the Spirit took the Word of God and through the uh, able but, but yet fallible leadership of the apostles and others, He grew the church from that little group in Jerusalem to a church, to a kingdom that has not only survived, it has thrived and continues to live in the appreciation of His sovereignty and the enjoyment of His grace looking forward, looking forward to that day while in fact indeed we can look backwards and say, I may not have seen his hand in the moment, but as I look back, I can see his hand, his guidance, and I know of his presence. And one day, again, what we know in kind of a, a foreshadowing kind of way, we shall certainly know in its fullest sense. And so let's look. As the church moves from Jerusalem all the way, hundreds of miles, into the city of Antioch. Read with me, Acts 11, 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me, go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, sit Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
if then John gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold that by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word, your testimony of yourself to us, given to us for the purpose that we might know you, not only know about you, but know you and know you uh, with great intimacy and in great power. And God, I pray that we would rightly divide your truth here in these moments, that your spirit would be at work, uh, uh, anointing, giving uh, me the ability to speak uh, your truth, and given to those uh, that hear here today. Uh, the ability to understand, and Lord, that we would apply these things to our lives. And God, we would be conformed uh, to the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, for uh, your glory and for the good of our souls. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when we left the book of Acts uh, last week, uh, we had left the Apostle Peter uh, there in that city of Caesarea, having preached the gospel to uh, Cornelius and his household. Uh, they had been saved, and God had done this unique thing of uh, manifesting himself, of giving the Spirit to those uh, believers with that unique manifestation of tongues, a sign uh, that came upon uh, the church with the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost. Again, instructing or continuing to instruct and illustrate for uh, the church uh, that the gospel was going to go to all people groups, that there would not be uh, distinctions, that the, the great truth of a of, of, a, of a living, of, of a crucified, of a resurrected Savior uh, would go to the very ends of the earth. That it would begin in Jerusalem, it would pass uh, through uh, Judea into Samaria, and it would go worldwide uh, from there. And that's what we're seeing is this testimony 
of the expansion of what we might call the footprint of the church, the, the effect of the gospel upon uh, the world as it's proclaimed, as the Spirit uses that which He has always used, namely the Word of God. And as they were sure, we can be sure. Christ will build His church. The church will be built through the means of the preaching of the Word of God. And so we find after uh, these uh, conversions, uh, the work of the Spirit there in Caesarea, we're told in uh, the verse uh, 48, the last verse of, of uh, chapter 10, that Peter remains in Caesarea. Uh, there's actually some evidence, I'm not sure it's the best or the most solid evidence, that he stayed in Caesarea for uh, a year. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the case, but we're told he stayed for an unspecified time. He was there functioning as an apostle, uh, proclaiming uh, the truth, giving oversight, providing uh, a model, uh, giving hands-on instruction uh, as he and the other apostles who remember the description, Peter went here and there, okay, which I find kind of a, a comical way. But he, he, he traveled widely for the sake of the church, for the sake of establishing the church in the truth. And so we find now that uh, there in Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the brothers there find out something. They hear of the news of what God is doing. And as they hear that, Peter uh, returns uh, to uh, Jerusalem. And so we are, we're told that upon Peter's arrival there in the city, his return to that initial, that I hate to use the term mother church, but that, that, that first uh, uh, church uh, there in Jerusalem, they had already heard that the gospel had reached peoples, people groups, other uh, than uh, the Jews, that it was actually going to Gentiles, and they had received this Word of God. That's not only that they, they heard it, but they received it uh, as true, they accepted its message, and they were saved by believing uh, the message of a crucified and resurrected uh, Christ. And we're told that upon arriving there in verse 2, and I, I had a bit of a chuckle uh, this week, some people came up to Peter, and they said, Peter, do you know what they are saying? Now, y'all all know who they are, don't you? Now, now, I have a rule. You don't ever come up to me and say, did you know they are saying, and you can fill in the blank, because after the they... I don't care. If you don't come to me and say, this is what I'm saying to you, and, and if they are saying, tell they to come tell me. Okay? Right? Right? Okay. So they, I'm kidding. Listen, let me have a little fun every once in a while. I, I live, you know, kind of shallow life. Okay? So, the party of the, the circumcision, the, the Jews, the, the, the true blue uh, ethnic, uh, uh, by virtue of physical descent and practicing uh, Jews, again referred to as the circumcision party, is ready 
to indict Peter. Uh, again, the, the language is that, that he was criticized. And, and I, I think that's a pretty strong word. I mean, it wasn't just, hey, Peter, we've heard, and gosh, we'd like to know. No, I think they were leading with their chins a little bit and like, hey, hey, buddy, who in the world do you think? And notice what Peter did, didn't do. And it, it's a bit of, of an, an aside uh, for, for those uh, Roman Catholics or others that would think of Peter as the original pope and uh, that the pope is infallible and he can't be questioned. Peter's response was, wait a minute, do you know who you're talking to? You can't say anything to me because everything I say is beyond criticism. No, he, he received it and he was prepared to explain and, and, and evidently explain graciously uh, that which had occurred, uh, the, the, the reasoning uh, behind that which he had, uh, had done. And so I think that's at least illustrative and, 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 and informative that there is a reciprocal type of accountability between the leadership of the church and the church. That it's okay for the church to have questions and to ask for explanations, okay? And that we should uh, respond in, in, a, in a gracious way. That doesn't mean that it's okay to fuss and fight about things. That's not my point. But that, that again, uh, the, the church came to Peter and, and Peter gave that reasonable defense. Uh, really a reason for the hope. that was. Why do I think these, these Gentiles have been converted? Well, let me tell you, they heard the gospel and they believed it and God gave them the deposit of the Spirit and we, we bore witness to the great reality of what happened. And so what does Peter do? Well, verse 4 tells us that he began to explain what he had experienced, okay? Uh, how uh, this business of the sheet descending. And we looked at that last week. I'm not going to uh, re rehearse it uh, for you. Uh, you know uh, the, uh, the story. And so uh, essentially uh, that, that uh, no animal is unclean in and of itself, that, 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 that Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are going to be citizens uh, without any distinction within uh, the church, within the kingdom. They're, they're not uh, second class but this type of thing always reminds us, and again, it gets at kind of what I was talking about uh, in terms of, of, of what needs to change, what's can't, what cannot change. And so we would be careful of a distorted sense of what we might call traditionalism versus a proper conservation of what is biblical. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, we're, we're not always sensitive to the we ain't never done it that way before, or, or, no, or no, we've always done it this way. Now, sometimes there's good biblical reasons for that, and if there are, that's where we want to uh, remain. But we always need to have kind of an open heart and an open mind and a keen eye to something that is just man's tradition about how things should be done, and that which is biblically true and, and mandated uh, for the church to observe and or uh, believe. So we would be careful. We're, we're always, I would even say struggling, between the poles of, of license and some type of extra-biblical legalism. 
In other words, uh, we do believe that there are things that Christians should do and there are things that Christians should not do. And we also believe that there are matters of, of conscience and there, there's a certain type of... You, now, Christian freedom never extends to this business of, uh, well, I can sin with immunity or impunity, okay? That, that's, when we speak of Christian freedom, we're, we're never saying that. We, we do understand that Christians sin, and we're thankful for His grace that, that calls us to repentance. But we want to be careful at either extreme of the damage that both an extra-biblical type of legalism uh, can do, but we also don't want to fall off of the roadway into license, which is harmful uh, as, as well. And we want to not practice legalism, but we do want to speak properly of discipline and even the practice of the disciplines that leads us into holiness or through holiness or, or uh, conforms us to the character of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, uh, you know, discipline is always hard because what? It's discipline, okay? But, but so, again, we're, we're always aware of those things, and there's, there's always kind of a tug uh, both in the individual heart and mind and, and within, uh, within the church. And so we can see some of that uh, going on here as these Jewish Christians are being stretched. They are being stretched that, that we, you know, it, 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 it turns my stomach. It, it would be like somebody coming in and, you know, usually somebody thinks they're being cute and you're not. Um, but, you know, bringing me a jar of mayonnaise, okay? And I'm like, Ugh! you know, it just makes me want to gag. Can I say gag? Okay, is it okay? Okay, it's okay. Okay, okay. Good, good word. Okay, uh, but the Jews would have had the same kind of, you know, gut feeling about you're going to eat that. I mean, it really was a, a, an emotional type of response, response which was difficult, and so we forget sometimes about what a challenge. Uh, removing that barrier uh, was the, the, the doing away with these biblical concepts of separation for the sake of holiness and uh, these things that God put in place to protect his people and when their usefulness the time frame for their usefulness has passed God did what he removed them he removed them and so we, we have to be careful as to what was temporary and what was permanent. If you remember, I made some distinctions about the civil law that pertained to a unique theocracy in the course of history. Then I talked about the ceremonial law that, that pertained to those unique people, and particularly as they related uh, to the, the temple and other aspects of Jewish life. And there's the eternal moral law, which continues to exist, and it informs and defines us. So, no animals unclean. The Gentiles are included. They're not uh, second uh, class, and Peter was wise enough, and, and, I, and I, I didn't say much about this last week, but if you'll remember, six brothers go along with him. So it makes seven people that were a part of this radical, radical reshaping 
of the, the thought and practice of, of the church. And there are some ancient witnesses or ancient cultures or witnesses to those ancient cultures that, that speak of uh, in legal proceedings, uh, this number of seven, seven witnesses or seven seals. And I don't, I don't know if that's a factor there, but, but as, a, as a pastor or even uh, those of you that are, are maturing as, as leaders in the church, uh, there are things that, that we have to do alone, but, but there are many things that we, we need to take others along with us to, to teach them uh, as to how to, to serve and to minister to one another. And so uh, Peter took these brothers with him, and they were witnesses. Uh, he wasn't kind of out there uh, on, a, on a ledge or out on a limb uh, by, by himself. And so having recounted uh, that uh, which happened and, and what, what it means by, by, by what happened, he asked this question down in uh, verse uh, 17, and, and got to be answered. You know, questions are good. Answer the question. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And so the answer is what? No, I, I, I can't stand in God's way. This is something uh, that God uh, has done, and so this forces them. They, they came to question him, but just as a tactical issue, what does he do? He turns the table and asks them a question. Oh, we got questions for you, Peter. Okay, that's fine. Here's my answer. Now, here's a question for you. Never a bad tactic when you're discussing issues uh, with people. And so uh, they're forced to think about this. And I can't help but say on occasion, you know, when people challenge me and I respond, and then I ask them a question, and the room goes silent. I can't help but chuckle. I'm a, I know, I'm kind of a mean guy. But, but yeah, sometimes it's just like, okay, what else have you got to say about this issue? I remember years ago, uh, some men came in to basically to fire me. And I said, well, here, why don't you read, read these two or three chapters out of the Bible? And they read them, and I grabbed the Bible and said, here, I'm going to tear those out of the Bible. They shouldn't even be there, should they? And they just walked out of my office. And I can't, I can't deny it was not kind of a sinfully pleasant experience to do that. But anyway, but I've repented of all that. I'm now completely sanctified, and I wouldn't do that to anybody else anymore, okay? Okay, so the conclusion then of verse 18 is they glorified God, maybe begrudgingly a little bit, because this doesn't resolve the issue, as you know, completely. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has genuinely saved these individuals. They are, they are saved as in fulfillment of many of the things that we looked at last week that the Old Testament promised, beginning with Abraham, that, that in you and through you all the nations are going to be blessed. And as Jesus emphasized upon his departure in the Great Commission, you're going to go into all nations, and you're going to preach the gospel, and you're going to instruct those that you preach the gospel to. You're going to baptize them and never forget, I am with you always. And it doesn't matter if you go, if I don't go with you, but he does. His promise is to go with the, the, people, uh, with the church. And so the church affirms this. We'll, we'll look at it. We're going to come back to it. Guess what? 
the issue rears its head again in Acts 15, but we'll, we'll postpone further comments uh, to that. So the gospel is inclusive, and how many terms of time, I know I've said this many times, and y'all remember every time I've said this. The gospel is inclusive, goes to the world, and it's exclusive in that it excludes every objection. There is no second way. There's, there's no alternative way. There are no detours. The gospel is the word of God specifically as it pertains to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done to save us. And so it reminds us of the essential uh, unity of the church. I've, I've told a couple of guys already this morning. I've got kind of a, a, a new friend that's uh, uh, played some golf with us lately, and he's a Methodist pastor. Now, he, he's a good Methodist pastor. He's conservative, okay? And, and he's part of the 198 that are saying bye-bye to the insanity in, in the Methodist church. But those of you that, that heard Al Mohler on Friday, he kind of made a distinction between heresy and error. And so I told my friend, I said, now you, you need to understand, I don't think of you as a heretic, I just think you're an error, okay? Now come on, that was pretty funny, okay? That, that, he's a good guy. He, he, and here's the thing, we could find a lot of things to disagree about, but we can agree what God has done to save us from our sins. Yeah, there's a lot we would disagree about. But we have an essential unity, which is the fulfillment of what Jesus prayed, that they may be one even as we are one, right? John 17. The true church is always a unified church because we're unified around the great confessions of the truth of the gospel. And the church is also a diverse group. Y'all really don't look very much alike, okay? And so there's a diverse, and we could get into all of that. And there, there's a kind of equality in the church, and that, that's not a denial of, of the legitimate place of leadership. But it reminds us the necessity of the church is the proclamation of the Word of God. That is a non-negotiable. That's what must happen. I, I was asked, uh, and I've been asked several times, you know, well, what's going to happen Christmas morning? And I, in, in the last time that, that Christmas fell on, on Sunday morning, uh, you know, I was shocked. Well, we're not going to have church today. It's the day set aside by even the pagans to remember that Jesus Christ is born and He is Lord. But we're not going to have church that day. We've got other things we've got to do. Give me a break. What's essential? We're going to gather as the people of God to celebrate our Savior and hear from His Word. And that's necessary. Okay? And I've ran across people over the years that, you know, they have the, the thumping bands, you know. Now, you can have a thumping band with the laser show and all that, or you can have a thumping band that came up in about a 35-year-old tour bus, and they got a guy on the bass drum, boom, 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 you know, doing that. They're, they're still rocking. And I've heard people say it every, you know, we, boy, church was so good this morning we didn't even preach. You didn't have church. You didn't have church. Ain't nothing wrong with good music. But the word must be proclaimed. In fact, there's something very right with good music. I'm for it. So, uh, and probably we are, we're looking at 
maybe about seven years post-Pentecost. It took some time uh, for the church to be grounded in the truth, uh, for uh, the apostles to kind of mature in their understanding. And so on God's timetable, uh, the, the, the church uh, is, uh, is, is expanding. And so uh, the church is at least in conceptual form. The practice is going to continue to be kind of roughly worked out. But they've got it that they're going to be Gentiles included in this thing called the church, which I think was helpful in pushing the church out of its kind of, uh, uh, you know, Judaism's ugly stepchild type mindset, okay? It helped them move to realize we, we really are very different from our ancestors and what they practiced, okay? There's continuity, but there's an important discontinuity. And so look at verse 19. We're going to see Barnabas once again. We, we were introduced to him early. And that we're told that, that, that those that were scattered, you remember Stephen's martyrdom, well, they begin to move out from Jerusalem. They're going through that Mediterranean basin. We see three cities mentioned, Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, uh, and Antioch. But again, just the, what, what they were thinking was the proper practice of the church. Uh, they only preached the gospel uh, to the Jews. Uh, they were going to the synagogues in these uh, cities. And, and so uh, uh, they, they eventually, though, uh, some of the ones from Cyprus and, and Cyrene come to the metropolitan area, the city of Antioch. And I've said very similar things, particularly in looking at Paul's work in Ephesus, Paul's work in Corinth, in that they were thoroughly vile, pagan cities. And this particular city, Antioch, was not different. And it was, uh, according to estimates, the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind uh, Rome and Alexandria. And John MacArthur, in his commentary, says, says this, that uh, it was notoriously wicked. Again, I mentioned third largest city behind Rome and Alexandria. It was noted for its culture and commerce since many Roman trade routes passed through it. Again, the, the gospel went to strategic areas, okay? Uh, the, the Roman author Cicero described it as a place of learned men and liberal studies. It was a vile place full of pagan worship and sexual immorality when the Roman satirist Juvenal wanted to aim a barb at Rome he wrote that the Orontes River emptied its garbage into the Tiber. Antioch was on this river, the Orontes. And so the debauched prostitution of the temple Daphne was five miles away. In other words, it was incredibly wicked. And it's a reminder that even when a culture is decadent to its core, and as we watch these things unfold in our culture, this week, uh, uh, I believe it's the, the House of Representatives passed this uh, protection of marriage in, in which the incompetent in chief will soon uh, celebrate and sign this piece of idiotic legislation. But make no mark about it. The effect of that is a threat to the church, okay? And it doesn't protect marriage in any shape, form, or fashion. But again, let me remind you, the gospel has prevailed 
over every debauched and decadent culture over the last 2,000 years. And if Christ tarries 10 minutes or 10,000 years, the gospel will continue to triumph over the debauched and the decadent. Okay? So we cannot like it and we can speak out against what's going on. But what we always need to be reminded of, the gospel is still true and it's still powerful. And what we sang about, the sovereignty of God over all people and all nations, even over those that sit in power, is still absolute and ultimately final. So, God is sending the church. The word is being preached. The spirit is at work. They begin with the Jews. They're going to the Gentiles. They encounter, in verse 20, 21, uh, these Hellenists, uh, these Greek-speaking Jews that were kind of probably straddling the fence on a, a lot of the, the Jewish uh, issues and they're preaching uh, this we've talked about the kerygma the essentials of the faith and we see that that phrase it's kind of reeks of old testament language the hand of the lord was with him god was displaying uh, his power and we're told that that a, a great number of people they they hear the the truth because god's power was being demonstrated they believed and they turned to to the lord and again those things go uh, together and so uh, uh, they're believing uh, the message, and God is saving them. And so when this happens, look at verse 22. Jerusalem hears of what's going on now in Antioch. Now, Peter's already given them the instructions that we saw in those first 18 uh, verses. And so interesting, we inter we're introduced to Barnabas again, uh, this man that is spoken of as uh, being a native of Cyprus and who, who sells property and gives it to the church. He, he's a man that is well uh, thought of, so well thought of that when Saul is converted, he's the one that really introduces him and defends him before the church, that we ought to include this guy. So he is a man of standing. But, but notice whether it's the apostles are out of town going here and there, as we saw earlier, uh, or, or for whatever reason, it's not an apostle that goes. It is this representative uh, Barnabas, and he arrives and he can quickly uh, discern that the grace of God was present, verse 23, among these people, and he was glad, and he begins to uh, exhort, he begins to encourage them uh, toward faithfulness. And so how would he know that God's grace was active in these very strange people, people that he didn't know? And so he saw that these people were what? They were hearing the Word, they were experiencing the application to the word of their lives. They, they, they were confessing the truth of the, the gospel, okay? And God was at work changing them uh, about uh, their attitudes and their actions about uh, all of, of life. And so he was glad. And so he exhorts them to remain faithful. And you, again, you, you've heard me say many times, that I think one of the missing doctrines in, in the church is a right exhortation, explanation of perseverance, uh, of continuing to believe. Now, we, we are not Armenians for a second, okay? I do not believe you can lose your salvation, okay? I believe people that think they're saved and act like they're saved for a lot 
are not really saved and they begin acting according to their nature sometimes. That happens. But nobody loses their salvation. But we must persevere. We must exhort one another. We must continue to believe that, that our faith will necessarily work its way out in obedience, in good works, that we must be nourished by uh, the Word of God. We got into the discussion a little bit Wednesday night. I, I am deeply convinced that those who believe, those who are born of the Spirit, that there is a natural affinity between the Spirit that has sealed us, that indwells within us, and the Spirit that inspired the Word of God. When those things come together, when you hear the Word of God, there's a resonance that takes place in your heart and mind that you say, yes, Lord, give me more. I believe that. I believe that happens. I've seen it. I experienced it in my own life. I see it each and every Sunday that I stand before you. And so they were nourished uh, by the Word. Uh, they were under the authority of, of Barnabas, uh, who, who gives attention to them. And so they are called uh, to holiness. They're called out of their pagan lifestyles. They're called to develop a, a biblical worldview. A biblical attitude, as I as I tell you, and I'll tell you time again, whether it is a what we call a political issue, and and pretty much, my interest in politics only extends to the area of where politics and morality touch, and 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 there's a reality that, you know, if you're legislating a stop sign, you're legislating morality. Okay, so quit whining about you can't legislate morality. They are, you are, we have been ever since laws came into being, but but my interest. Again, it's where the important moral issues that are biblically defined uh, are touched upon in the law, in public policy, in politics. And there we stand firm. And again, if God has stated a position about something, whether it's marriage or whether it's the right to life or all of these things, folks, you're not entitled. I don't care if you are an American. You're not entitled to any other position other than the biblical position. Okay? It's the way it is. So, verse 24, he was described as a good man. Now, there's a lot of things that get said about me over the years and has been said. I don't know very many of you have ever said I'm a good man. Now, I have to tell you, I've told you this story before. A good friend of mine had a son, a friend of mine from Beeson. Just a few years after we finished, his son Ben, who was about five, three, four, five, can't remember exactly, developed a brain tumor. And he wrestled with it for about five years, and he died. But one day I called to check on the family, check on Ben. He was my buddy. And my friend Steve says, yeah, when, when, when Ben realized it, it, uh, it was you that was calling, he says, oh, Brother Tim, he's a good man. I said, man, alive. I don't, nobody says that about me very much. We've got to keep him around. And Steve said, you need to remember, Tim, he has a brain tumor. So, so again, but people could look. And what did they see? They saw the grace of God, the power of God, being on display in this man, Barnabas, who was full of the Spirit. His life was characterized by the intrinsic and essential good works that define those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he discerns, I need some help. And so in verse 25 and 26, we're going to be reintroduced to our friend from chapter 9, Saul. And remember, Saul, in his 
conversion experience was also a commissioning experience that you're going to go and you're going to take my name to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas goes, man, have I got a job for you. You know, you know again, one of the jokes around here is everybody has caller ID on their phone. If I call them, they don't take the call because they know I want them to do something. Okay, so they just click off and they never answer the phone when Pastor Tim calls. So I don't know. I, I don't know. Saul must not have had caller ID when Barnabas called him. Now, Barnabas goes to Tarsus, and the language here in verse 25 where it says he went to look for Saul, that meant it took him some time. It took some effort. Uh, I don't know if Saul was in hiding or if he had left. and went, I'm not sure exactly what the circumstances, but, but the idea is it, it took him some effort to track down this man, uh, Saul. And so he found him, and he brought him uh, to Antioch, and they stay a whole year, and they lead the church, they teach the church, they shepherd uh, this church, and eventually uh, this church is going to do what? Going to send them off in that great missionary endeavor. And we're told as kind of an aside uh, there that it is at Antioch, at this Gentile church, that the church, the Christians, are first known as Christians, which was probably not very much of a commendation as much as a, a criticism or something that was demeaning, uh, but obviously has become a badge of honor. And so we see uh, after uh, they arrive, they're leading the church, and in the midst of that, verse 27, there's a prophet that appears in their midst. His name is Agabus, or Agabus. Uh, he is going to reappear in Acts 21. And he comes to prophesy, and he prophesies about a, a great famine. Now, again, in the early church, there were prophets. There were those that came with revelatory information from God. And he came specifically to tell them that here's an event that's about to happen. Uh, be, uh, be prepared. Uh, secular historians from the ancient world tell us about this famine. We see the footnote there. Uh, in verse 28, that it took place in the reign of Claudius, which was about a 13-year reign from 41 A.D. to 54 A.D. And so they determined that it would be both uh, of practical assistance and have a kind of a, a theological importance if they give money to the church in Jerusalem for their support. And so the church at Antioch, because they see themselves connected, they see that essential unity of the church, they offer, even though they're the fledging new church, to send money uh, back to the quote-unquote mother church. And there in verse 30, the interesting thing, again, transition, transformation, uh, the money is sent to the elders, which is the first use of that term uh, in uh, the book of Acts. And so we're going to see this transition of leadership from apostolic authority uh, to this local leadership of uh, the elders. And so what do we see here in this? Well, again, emphatic statement regarding the inclusion of the Gentiles, uh, the movement of the kind of the center of the church uh, from uh, Jerusalem uh, to Antioch. We see Barnabas introduced uh, as a, a man who is going uh, to lead and I think probably kind of paved the way toward a, a local leadership issue of, of elders leading in local churches. Uh, once again, we see Paul appear on the scene. We see uh, this intrinsic relationship uh, between Jerusalem uh, and Antioch. We see again what's kind of strange to our ears, a prophet that come among us. But we see, we see the word 
and the Spirit, informing and empowering the church, changing the church, letting them, giving them understanding what's going to change and what must change and what's going to remain the same. And one of the challenges of our going forward as a church, and I mean that North Clay, and I mean that, you know, big, big C church or whatever you want to call it. There are going to be plenty of people that look at things, passages such as this. Well, God saw fit to drop the barrier, and now the Gentiles, well, they were included. Why can't we drop the barriers for fill in the blank? Why, why would we exclude those who are immoral? Why would we exclude those who uh, affirm uh, abortion? And on and on the list will go. We see that, that, that God accepts everybody. There, there are no divisions. There are no reservations. And the church must be incredibly discerning about that which is essential and intrinsic to the truth that's part and parcel of that which is an eternal standard and that which God has defined as temporary and transitional and can be removed and can be overcome. And so we'll leave it at that. I, I hope you can think about it. You're, listen, you're going to be forced to think about it for the rest of your life. You're going to be forced to make decisions, okay? And they're going to, listen, as much as we want to rightly divide the word, there are people just as busy as we are wrongly dividing it, okay? They're wrongly dividing it. And so uh, be careful as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, Lord, as we, we read because of our own frailty and fallenness lord we 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 err sometimes uh, we get off track uh, in our personal life and even the church has erred so many times over its 2000 year history but god you by your word and spirit you direct your people back into the tracks of the truth and so lord i pray that we would follow hard after you that we would know the truth we would speak the truth we would live by the truth we would insist upon the truth that we would be uh, discerning as to your will and your way for our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.